We are back this morning in Genesis chapter 41. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word in some form, paper or electronic. We have just a short passage this morning, verses 33 through 43. And then next time, Lord willing, we will look to completing this chapter. So Genesis chapter 41, picking up at verse 33. Remember that Joseph had just interpreted uh, Pharaoh's dreams. And now he continues on saying, Now therefore... Let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be reserved for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt." so that the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and over my people. And, uh, sorry, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him rise, ride in the second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he, thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Let us pray. Lord God, you indeed are the exalted one. You are the most high God. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the perfect Redeemer, King of kings and Lord of lords. And he is our Lord and our Redeemer and our Savior because we by your Spirit have trusted in him. And you have promised that to all who trust, to all who believe, we shall not perish but have everlasting life. And we are in Christ experiencing the riches that you have given to your people. Lord, you, may, you have made us wealthy beyond our imagination, spiritual blessings, and we have abundant life. Thank you, Lord God, for these riches in Christ. And give us a hearing of your word this morning to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we began by hearing about Joseph's dreams. And then we saw that Joseph experienced the, the, the despair and grief of crushed dreams. And then the patience of waiting for dreams. And now, finally, after all these years, fulfilled dreams. If you look in verses 41 and following, we just read where Pharaoh set Joseph over all the land of Egypt. And he said, they called out, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. And soon enough, his own family would be coming to Egypt, and they would be among all those that would be, in fact, bowing down to Joseph's. 
Joseph. But Joseph's dreams were not ever about himself, okay? They were not about his own exaltation, his own prosperity, his own benefit, like he was just experiencing great success in his career. No, they were always about God's eternal purpose, as Isaiah prophesied earlier. I planned from days of old what I now bring to pass. See, Joseph had to wait. Why? Well, because God was waiting, and only now was God ready to bring to pass what he had purposed, what he had ordained, what he had planned from many, many years ago, from days of old, as Isaiah said. And God's purpose in protecting Egypt during this coming famine was to give them the ability to be able to welcome Jacob's family, Israel, and offer them a safe and prosperous place to live. That Israel would then grow into this large and prosperous nation according to God's covenant with Abraham and then setting up the eventual exodus and then conquest. In fact, Moses tells us in Exodus 1, from which Pastor Ben preached a long time ago, it seems, uh, Moses records that all the descendants of Jacob that came into Egypt during those days were 70 people, okay? But yet over those years, they lived in Goshen. They were, Moses records, they were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. In other words, they became like what? Like the sand on the seashore or like the stars in the skies as per God's covenant promise to Abraham, right? And then 400 years later, the Lord God led them out of Egypt under Moses and then years later into the promised land under Joshua. And that conquest was really about God establishing, if you will, a a new Garden of Eden, basically the place on earth where God will dwell with his people, which would eventually be symbolized by the presence of the temple in Jerusalem. And yet, even that, even giving his people the land of Canaan was only about God's even far greater plan, okay? Even as uh, Adam and Eve were to, were to multiply and fill the earth, it was then always God's eternal plan to fill the earth with his people, okay? To spread his kingdom to the ends of the earth, to borrow from Revelation, so that there would be a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. And so, before our Lord ascended, He gave the church their essential mission, which is what? We all know it, to make disciples of the nations, okay? Because Jesus is Lord of the nations. Remember Psalm 2, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. So our narrative this morning, years before that, looks to and anticipates that. It's a kingdom of God narrative, as all of the Old Testament is. So taking this rather bold witness, Joseph interpreted Pharaoh's dreams. We saw that last time. And now this morning, he immediately becomes, if you will, something of a self-appointed wise man and makes suggestions to Pharaoh how Pharaoh ought to handle this coming crisis. First, there would be, of course, a prosperity, which would follow by a challenge and a crisis. 
And he proposes, okay, you ready for this? Good thing you're sitting down, a 20% tax. Now, I want to be careful here because I'm a little bit worried there's going to be a politician among us visiting, and they're going to go walk away with some grand idea about what is God's will for our lives. But okay, we won't go there. However, because God was directing these events according to his divine plan for Israel's life through the uh, appointment of a, of a divine Savior, Pharaoh welcomed Joseph's word. And Pharaoh welcomed Joseph, this Hebrew slave who had been in prison because of the accusation against his own servant's wife. So Joseph no longer criticized, no longer rejected, but now welcomed and praise. And he was now in position, after all these years, to receive his family, to bring about the reconciliation with his brothers, uh, and his dreams were about to be fulfilled from when he was just a 17-year-old lad. Now notice in verse 37 and following, I spoke of this a moment ago, that Pharaoh praised Joseph. Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? And then he further says in verse 39, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house. Well, God had given Joseph great knowledge and wisdom and insight and understanding of secrets and mysteries, okay? God had equipped him with great uh, wisdom. He was uniquely qualified, as Pharaoh recognized, to serve in the necessary capacity to protect Egypt. Years later, Solomon, son of David, you, you remember, was given great wisdom by God as well. And even the queen of Sheba recognized that Solomon had vast understanding, vast wisdom. And she also praised Solomon saying, Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you to set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. Therefore, he made you king to do justice and righteousness. But we have seen, I, I trust you understand now, that Old Testament revelation points to what God is doing redemptively in preparing the way for the Christ who would eventually come. And so Joseph's exaltation here, again, is not for himself, not for his own glory, but that it would point rather to another with a capital A, right? Another who would be appointed and anointed and given the Spirit of God, of course, Jesus. Jesus, who would think about this, who would receive his family and bring about the reconciliation of his brothers with God. And Jesus also once criticized, mocked, rejected, okay, crucified outside the city in rejection, treated unjustly, now praised by his people throughout the world. Amen. Because he is Lord of the nations. He is the rightful ruler of all things, as Psalm 2 speaks of. Okay, he is the one the people praise. We are here this morning to praise our Savior, to praise our Redeemer. He's not just a Redeemer. He is the Redeemer. He's not a Lord. He is the Lord. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And many throughout the nations understand this now as the kingdom has gone to 
every land. And the psalmist speaks of this. He, he said, nations will fear the name of the Lord, and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. And also all the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. So Jesus, having dominion, being Lord, is praised among the nations, though he, of course, has many enemies still. So the church's mission, we as part of the worldwide church, our mission as believers is to find the people God is calling to worship Him in spirit and in truth because those are the, in John 4, those are the ones God is seeking. Right? He's seeking those who will worship no longer idols, no longer false gods, but those who will come in Jesus' name and worship Him and seek Him and love Him and pursue Him. So then let's ask us, ask ourselves, well, okay, what does this mean for us as God's people? What, what kind of people does God use in His kingdom? We're going to spend the rest of our time talking about this question. What kind of people does God use in His kingdom? Well, people like Joseph. Christ-like servants who display the gospel in their lives. Because, because Joseph not only points to Jesus, he's not only a type of the Christ to come, but Joseph, as a godly man, as a person just like us, sinner saved by grace, he is also a godly example for us, okay? So what kind of people? First, we must be people like Joseph in whom is the Spirit of God. In fact, Jesus said, that's why I must go away, because if I go away, I can send the Spirit. And it's better that I go away, that you would have the Spirit of God. Is that an amazing thing to me? I think about, it's better, Jesus, that you're gone? Yes, because the Spirit dwells with God's people everywhere, throughout all the world, at all times, okay? The fact is, dear ones, you must be born again. You know that. The flesh profits nothing. We can do nothing spiritually. We cannot glorify God with the works of the flesh because that produces sin. That's weakness. That's inadequacy. That profits nothing, okay? Man's wisdom is foolishness. Man's strength is weakness. What did the prophet say? Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord, okay? Unless the Spirit is in you, and unless you are walking in the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit, you cannot be a profitable servant. It is only by the Spirit of God. This church will grow. Christ's church will grow and prosper, and the, and the kingdom will advance only by the Spirit, okay? Moving on. Secondly, we must not only be a Spirit-indwelt person, born again, regenerated. We must be a humble person, okay? Because, in fact, God opposes the proud. That ought to scare us. God opposes the proud, but, love that word, but, gives grace to the humble. Okay, mankind's drive is by nature for self-exaltation. I believe people are by nature proud and, and puffed up and we often demand what we think we deserve. In fact, marketers play on that. You deserve a break today or whatever it is you think they think you deserve, okay? 
we are proud and puffed up and we pursue the exaltation of self. We see that in little kids, in families, okay? We call that what? Sibling rivalry. Kids don't always get along. They might love each other, but they fight and bicker. Why? Because one's trying to assert himself or herself over the others, trying to get mom's or dad's attention, trying to say, hey, I'm first and you are under me. I'm the ruler, okay? Not just ruling your siblings, but ruling the parents as well. They're too often successful. We won't go there either. <laughs> Marital problems. Anyone ever have those? Okay, because... <laughs> Liar. <laughs> because of, again, I'm pursuing exaltation. I'm pursuing to be greater than my... My wife and we have, or my husband, and we have interpersonal problems, even competition in business to some extent, okay? Each one seeking to be esteemed and, and praised above the others, climbing that ladder, so to speak, okay? In politics, one party against the other, not for the benefit of the American people or whatever people, but for that, that party's exaltation and, and power, okay, and prestige, even in the church, we can have this rivalry, these fights, okay? That's why we have the fifth membership vow, which you heard recently, which includes the promise to study its purity and what? Peace, harmony, unity, okay? Which means we as members are not to be a part of this church to pursue self-promotion and self-exaltation, but for the peace of the church and for the glory of Christ. Now, Joseph wanted freedom. Oh, he was desperate to be released from that prison, from that pit, as he called it, okay? But he never pursued self-exaltation, okay? He didn't seek political greatness. He didn't ask for the position which he recommended. He lived according to Proverbs 25, verse 6, do not put yourself forward or do not claim honor in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great. He stood before Pharaoh. Why? Because he was asked. He was invited. And he interpreted Pharaoh's dreams because he was asked to. That's why he spoke. And yet he did not seek the honor of the position he recommended. And yet he received that honor, displaying the principle that he who humbles himself shall be exalted. Jesus said of himself in John 8, I do not seek my own glory. Jesus didn't come to seek his own glory. He said, my father glorifies me. Okay? And so this has to be true of you and me, of us as disciples of Christ. We must Humble ourselves. It's a command in Scripture. Humble yourselves before the mighty hand of God. Pursue the last seat, okay? I don't say the back of the room because I don't want to suggest people up here are pursuing greatness. Of course not. Uh, but we, we, we should pursue, to be, uh, pursue the, to be the last position, okay? We must humble ourselves before God and before one another, in, in Gonville and Caius College in Cambridge, I've not been there, but I read there are three, there's a courtyard with three gateways, and Dr. Caius built these many, many years ago to symbolize the passage of students through the college. I don't know if such a thing exists anymore, 
But the first gateway is called humility. The second is called virtue. And the final gateway through, one, through which one passes, having gone through the, the first two, is honor. You get the point. Humility leads to virtue, and virtue leads to honor. See, in truth, you can't really seek the Lord, and you can't serve the Lord faithfully unless you humble yourself before Him. Because before honor, before exaltation, comes humility. Just like in Cambridge, like in that courtyard. It's a wonderful illustration. Before exaltation comes humility. There is no exception to that. It is the way of the Lord. We as Presbyterians and as believers, we speak of the ordo salutis, the order of salvation, okay? Includes things like justification, which our catechism calls an act of God's free grace. You are once for all time justified, right? You are, a, you are still a sinner, but you are declared righteous because of Christ. It's a one-time act of God. But then there's also what we call sanctification, which is the process of becoming Christ-like, okay? It's, a, it's called a work of God's free grace. It's becoming conformed to the image of Christ. And it is really summed up by humility. Many years ago, I was privileged to teach the children in our church in California the Shorter Catechism. We used G.I. Williamson's two volumes. It used to be two. It's one now, I think. But anyway, Dr. G.I. Williamson became a bit of a friend of mine, uh, his volume on the Shorter Catechism. And he says this. I, 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 this is a wonderful summary, I think, of what sanctification means. Sanctification is not a process by which we go higher and higher until we can stand before God feeling that we are holy people. It is rather a process by which we go lower and lower in our estimation of self while at the same time we desire above all that we might be holy. For it is only in genuine humility that we become really holy. Okay, even Paul said, I am the chief of sinners. So that begs the question, if we are by nature not humble, but rather proud and puffed up, how does one become humble? Well, to put it simply, humility comes by being humbled And sadly, I suppose, that usually happens through suffering, even as Joseph had to suffer for years, okay? Amazingly, even of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says um, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. And God put Joseph in prison, the psalmist says, to test him. To humble him, okay? And didn't we discern some weeks ago maybe more than a little pride in his dreams or at least in his sharing his dreams with his family, even with his parents? Look at what's going to happen. Look what God's going to bring about. Look who I'm going to be. But through suffering, Joseph became a humble man. 
And having been humbled, he was prepared to be exalted because then he would be a servant of the people. Then he would be prepared to save Egypt and Israel and not be a servant of himself. In fact, again, going back to Paul, Paul, you remember, was given a thorn in the flesh. Why? Paul had great revelations, great knowledge, great wisdom, the great apostles of the Gentiles. Why was he given this thorn in the flesh from which he was not healed, by the way? Okay, God said, my grace is sufficient, right? Why? To keep me from exalting myself. Beloved, an arrogant leader is the misery of the people. I don't care if that's in government, if it's in the family, if it's in the community, if it's in the church. An arrogant leader is the misery of the people. And I happen to believe that it is for this reason that God's service, especially pastors and elders and deacons and missionaries and, and God's leaders, often experience the providence of suffering. See, because authority and position corrupt, yes, even in the church, and nothing is more harmful to the church than an arrogant leader. Such a leader will lead everyone into the pit. And that's why I will always say that until a person experiences some significant suffering in his life, or perhaps her life, that person really can't be a good church leader. But that doesn't mean, it doesn't matter what I say. Listen to what Peter said, what Peter wrote by the Spirit of God. Since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of his time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And so Joseph, having suffered in the flesh for years and years unjustly, he was now well prepared to serve God and well prepared to serve Egypt and Israel. Consider the authority he was given in verse 40 and verse 44. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. This is the king over the most powerful land in all the world in those days. Okay? And he said in verse 44, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up a hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. What is it we say about power and about absolute power? Okay? If Joseph was an arrogant, self-serving ruler... It would have been disastrous for Egypt. But God had prepared him for that authority and for that rule and for that position through suffering. As we saw last time, it was the pit that prepared Joseph for the palace. So I don't know what God's preparing you for, but if you're suffering, rejoice and be glad because God's doing a marvelous work in you. So God uses a humble person indwelt by his own spirit. But thirdly, God uses a gifted and equipped person. Okay, Joseph suggested Pharaoh appointed a discerning and wise man to be in charge of the action he's about to suggest. 
He said, Pharaoh, you should delegate this to someone else, someone who's capable, someone who can do this job well, and entrust that person to work under you to carry on this work. Obviously, Joseph knew that the king had a vast array of responsibilities, okay, a large kingdom, and therefore someone else was needed to serve under him. And then under that leader would be overseers or managers who would report to this chief person, okay, to help ensure its success. This is reminiscent of what, of what Jethro suggested to Moses. Remember that? When, he, when Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, saw that Moses was wearing himself out, wearing himself to the bone with all this ministry, he said, the thing you're doing is not good. You will surely wear yourself out, both yourself and these people who are with you, for the task is too heavy. You can't do it alone. He then suggested, appoint others, appoint leaders of leaders and so forth, okay? Therefore, the management will be done efficiently and well, and all the tasks and things will be taken care of. Well, that's God's plan for the church as well. That's God's plan for His people. Jesus is the head, appointed by the Father, and then there are elders and deacons and and, and other people, okay? The Word of God says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift, Ephesians 4. Therefore, it says, When He ascended on high, He led a host of captives, and He gave gifts to men. And He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And so we, as people of the church, believers, we are to be involved in kingdom ministry in some way, according to the gifts that God has given to us. And of course, every church needs elders and deacons. Every church needs teachers. Every church needs someone to manage the finances and someone to care for the facilities, someone to minister the word to children and to youth, someone to care for the elderly, someone to visit the sick. Uh, There are administrative tasks. There are social and fellowship events to plan. There's praying that needs to be done. There's encouragement that needs to be done. There are countless tasks in every church, but God has provided for those by giving gifts to his people. He's called some to be pastor teachers, some evangelists, some elders and deacons, but there are many gifts as well because there are uh, many ministries. And we know the analogy in Scripture as the body has many members and yet it's one body, okay, each member participating to the good of the whole body, all right, the, the hands not beating up the face or the leg kicking something else, okay, each member functions according to, or each member works according to its particular function, you know, reaching with a hand or seeing with the eye or hearing with the ear and so forth, okay? So the church is one body with many members, each acting according to the gifting by the Holy Spirit. Now, Pastor Gene preached on this a few weeks ago, did a marvelous job, and I commend his sermon to you if you didn't hear it. But let me say this. Paul said, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If God has given you gift in serving, then serve. If God's given you gift in teaching, then teach. If God's giving you a gift in, in encouragement, encourage, and so on and so forth, okay? Even as Joseph had the spirit for the good of Egypt, 
and Israel eventually. So we are given the Spirit for the good of the body. Not for our exaltation, not for our own benefit, but for the good of the body, for the good of the church. And it's only in this way that the church can carry out the task assigned to it, okay? For we are part of the church, again, for the glory of Christ and for the advancement of His kingdom to the ends of the earth. Every believer has the Spirit. Therefore, every believer has one or more gifts. I don't know what yours are, but we are called to serve, to engage in ministry to the glory of God. Are you doing that? Okay? We know that when a part of our human body ceases to function or malfunctions, okay, there's some sort of illness or, or paralysis or some problem, okay? It's true for the body of Christ as well. If, if a gift is missing because someone is not using that gift, there's going to be some lack, some need, some problem. Again, the church is about kingdom mission. We're not here for ourselves, okay? We are here for the glory of Christ to be engaged in His kingdom, in His mission, okay, which is for God to be worshipped and for His kingdom to advance to the ends of the earth, okay, for the, the fame and glory of the name of Christ. And for that to happen, the church must function as a healthy body, each part working, each part becoming strong, the body maturing in unity and peace as each part does each member does its part. See, remember this dream that Joseph had, this prophetic vision. Well, the dream of Christ ruling over the nations and giving life involves the entire church, all believers. And we must seek to be humble servants, having the Spirit of God, and engaged and equipped with that Spirit and with our gifts, serving the church and serving Christ according to our calling. Let us pray. Oh, Lord God, the good news is always such incredible and amazing news, and yet it challenges us as well that we might serve you, God, and not ourselves. We thank you for Joseph's example that he didn't seek his own exaltation. He was not any longer proud and, and puffed up. Lord, he was a servant and he looks to Christ who didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Lord, let us, each of us here have that Christ-like servant attitude to be humble, to be meek, and to, as we are equipped by you, by your Spirit, to serve the church and the world to the glory of Christ. For we have been given a commission to make disciples of all the nations, that Christ might become famous, that He might be exalted in all places everywhere. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.